Hello everyone, Joe Perez here from Blizzard Watch with a quick note. This episode is going to contain a number of spoilers for the upcoming Shadowlands expansion. We weren't originally going to include them, but some of the questions from you, our listeners, led us down those paths. So just as a quick warning, if you're looking to avoid spoilers for what is coming in Shadowlands, you might want to take a breather from this episode. Uh, we apologize, and we promise we'll be back to normal content that you can consume at your leisure very, very soon. Hello, and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How you doing today, Matt? I'm not reading the right button. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I was talking and talking, and then I realized I'm hitting the print screen button. So this, he's not hearing any of this. Well, I mean, no, but you're going to have some screenshots for later, I guess. Go figure. Yeah, some screenshots of this person's torso. <laughs> Probably not the weirdest thing that'll happen today. Uh, so today we're going to be going through another set of questions from you, our wonderful listeners. Uh, but I'm going to take a moment to make a quick announcement because I can do this now because we are getting very, very close to it. Next week's show, we are going to have a very special show uh, joining us for a discussion of an upcoming novel uh, that will be uh, in your hands or available to purchase relatively soon. Madeline Rowe is going to be joining us here on Lorewatch to uh, discuss her new book and the wonderful addition to the World of Warcraft lore. So be sure that you join us then, uh, and especially it's a really good time if you're listening to this and you're not a patron yet, you might want to get on that train so you can get an early, uh, early copy of that, uh, that recording. In the meantime, if you have other questions that you want us to answer here on the podcast or the other podcast or the queue, uh, go ahead and send them into us. We do have several Discord channels where we look. Uh, we have a patron and supporter queue and podcast section. Uh, we also have a general uh, chat section for questions for the queue, which we do check both of those for uh, questions from you folks. We do give patrons uh, a, a slightly higher priority. Or if you want to email us, you're not too keen on that discord train that's fine you can email us at podcast at blizzardwatch.com and let us know what questions you want us to answer our first one comes from Shotkey, a blood elf mage uh hey guys question for lore watch i'm a longtime horde player trying to pick up the broken pieces of my heart at this expansion my question what is the justification for the forsaken to accept kalia menethil as leader the story of the Forsaken includes so much that makes this a questionable problem for me. It's obviously problematic that Kalia is the brother of Arthas, but she is also is very much more tied to the Alliance than the Horde. It feels like this is one more time the Alliance is swooping in to save the Horde and clean up our mistakes. What is the justification for her being consider, uh, considered to take over from Sylvanas and not a council like had been in place? Well, starters, the council's dead. Sylvanas killed them. Yep, that was a whole before the storm thing. Whole book about Second, that. Secondly, I mean, Kalia's—you could argue Kalia's alliance, but Kalia is as much alliance as every single Forsaken, since they were all in Lordaeron, the biggest nation in the alliance of Lordaeron. 
That's, by the way, remember, that's what it was named, the Alliance of Lordaeron. So, I mean, you can't just, you can't just write her off as, you know, she's, she's, she knows Alliance people or, you know, her relative, you know, it's, it's just, it doesn't work as a write-off. The idea that she's somehow too much like the Alliance or too much part of it. I don't even know if Calio is considered to be a member of the Alliance at this point. The Alliance that we now have, the one that's Night Elves, Dwarves, the city, the humans of Stormwind, that's not the same Alliance. It's very different. Um, of the nations that were in that Alliance, I mean, only Stormwind endures. Uh, Iris was not a member until recently. Um, Gilneas clearly is... If Gilneas is considered a member of it, it's definitely in a state where the actual people of Gilneas might be members, but the, the nation of Gilneas, that's on the fence. Uh, half of Gilneas is still considered part of the, you know, well, it's kind of, I don't even know who controls the area now, like in Silverpine. Silverpine was all Gilneas. You have to remember that. Everything mm-hmm. that we call Silverpine, that was the northern half of Gilneas that got closed out when the Gilneans built the wall. They literally left half their people to dry. And so the third war happened and they, their, those people were like cut out of their own nation and they ended up getting destroyed by the plague. So that's, that's a whole bag of worms to even try and get through. Uh, Dalaran in the Kirin definitely don't, I mean, they've, they've dipped in a little bit under Jaina. They, they kind of said, yes, we're part of the Alliance again. And now they're very much not saying that anymore. Uh, I don't even know who, who's considered to be in charge of the, the Kirin Tor at this point. The Council well, of Six. The, but, yeah, I was going to say, the Council of Six is still kind of running the show there. Yeah. But they're non-entities, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, especially Cadgar. I will flat out say this. Cadgar is a non-entity. He did nothing this whole expansion. Correct. So, until, until he comes back and does something, uh, I'm not counting him as a leader of anything. But that, yeah, you've got the Dal- you got Dalaran's definitely not doing anything. Um, Alterac is gone. Parts of it are, you know, held by the Forsaken. I don't. I, the other problem is, like, you know, seriously, who did they have to pick instead of her? Especially with Lillian Voss very clearly pushing for it to be her. Lillian Voss is the only other person I could think of who could have credibly taken the role. If oh, yeah. Lillian Voss is trying to put Talia on, you know, up front, that definitely feels like a high. I'm way too smart to make myself the target, so I'm going to put you up here. You can be the figurehead. You stand here, and you you direct everyone's attention. I'll be back here actually getting things done. That's how that feels to me. So with Lillian Voss not wanting it because she can do more from behind the scenes, and Kalia feeling responsible for the people of Lordaeron, who are now undead, it's kind of hard to say anybody else should do it. I'm not saying that the council idea is necessarily a bad one. Had Sylvanas not killed them all, but she did, and we're you know we're left with relatively few options here. I think Callie is the only option that can keep the Forsaken intact. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I, th- I think there's also a couple of the things that you need to bear in mind as well. Uh, and if you haven't read it. Please go read Before the Storm. It it is a fantastic book. It fills in a lot of these gaps. But there's a whole long section there about Kalia specifically saying she's not a member of the Alliance. She's not part of Stormwind. She's not 
she's an outsider. She feels like she's an outsider because these aren't, while she's human, these aren't necessarily her people anymore. And she even flat out says that the people that are her people are basically over there in that in Undercity that are being raised from the dead. Like she feels so bad for them. She understands some of what they went through and she wants to help heal them. Like that's a whole big plot point for her before the expansion ever happens. And then everything happens. So she feels she's always felt more strongly connected to the forsaken because of that than even the living humans, at least that's that's the impression that they they very strongly give so that's number one number two nothing says that the idea of her quote-unquote being in charge and having a council are mutually exclusive it's entirely possible that she might help establish that council and take an advisory role she'd still be a faction leader but there'd be something else in place because she's also been very reluctant to, to be a leader of people in general. Like that's, that's another thing that they talk about in before the storm. So we don't know how that's going to play out, but I don't think anybody else could possibly fill that role to help heal them. And if you look at the entire end sequence, that's, Part of the reason why she's being brought to the Forsaken, it's not to give them another leader. It's not to give them a monarch to to follow. It's not giving them another banner to march under. It's specifically to help heal them. And as a Horde player, you don't get to see uh, the conversation quite as thoroughly as the Alliance side does when she goes and meets with Jaina and, and they have that whole conversation and Derek's there as well. She even says, she's like, I'm going to go to try to heal my people to make them whole again. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's part of the reason why she agrees to go with Lillian Voss. That's part of the reason she shows up. And in that entire exchange with Lillian Voss, you see all those uh, shadow wardens and dark rangers that sort of meld out of the shadows. And they even say, we need help. Essentially, we we don't want to feel like this. We want to be better. We want to let go of our rage. How do we do that? How do we fix ourselves? How do we how do we move forward in this new unlife? And that's an entire plot point for, you know, Kalia and Derek throughout the entirety of Battle for Azeroth. Like she helps Derek figure out what he needs to do with this new life to make peace with it, to, to understand what's going on there. So maybe we look, we're looking at it the wrong way. Maybe she's going to be a faction leader and only name. Maybe she will establish a council. Maybe she's going to be the one that helps these, these folks helps the forsaken make peace and become whole again. But we don't know yet. As far as justification goes, I think that's it. I think the fact that she is of that people, she's of that kingdom. She feels more strongly for those people than she has almost anybody else that's living right now. And the fact that she's never really been a part of the Alliance. Don't forget. She's been living in exile before, you know, before the events of before the storm, she wasn't helping them. She wasn't part of their organization. She wasn't part of their, their structure or war councils or any of that stuff. She was just there. She was living her life, trying to figure out her own place. So to me, I, I, I wouldn't even say that it's justification. I think it just is the most logical sense that 
the next steps for the Forsaken, whether that be a council, whether that be following another monarch, whatever that is, she's the logical step to facilitate that. So, anything else to add to that one, Matt, or anything you disagree with? No, more that I'm thinking about, like, I'm still thinking about the concept of, like, who else would have been. Like, it obviously wasn't going to be Nathanos. Nope. Because, you know, Sylvanas loyalist to his till he dies. Um, there's Leonid Bartholomew, I guess, who's not really a Horde member, but he left he left the Forsaken because he thought Sylvanas was nuts. And he's been, like, up there, you know, in the, with the uh, Argent Dawn, basically living his best Forsaken life as a Forsaken from the Forsaken, so... I mean, he, I guess he's a possibility. I just, there really wasn't a lot of options here. There was, there's not a deep pool of forsaken leadership that could have stepped in because, again, Savannah killed them. <laughs> you know, I, I keep coming back to that. When, when, when the person who currently holds the job kills everybody who could possibly replace her and then swans on out, it does sort of leave you sort of like, um, who we got? Anybody on the bench? Lillian? No way. Are you getting me in that chair, man? Yeah, and then you have like what Alonso's foul. He's he's way too neutral. Yeah, he's in fact Alonso's foul is much. You know, if you didn't like Calia, I I don't know if Alonso's foul is the way to go. That dude inspired paladins. They, they wouldn't mm-hmm. be paladins without him. It's, you want a guy who's got a lot of alliance ties. That 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 guy's not exactly not that. So yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I I feel like. I feel like Cali is pretty close to the only option they have. At least logically speaking. And I mean, and those of you out there that are listening, if you have an opinion on this, let us know who who do you think would be the better choice to lead the Forsaken or who do you think would have a better case of doing it? Because, I mean, the only other real strong character, and Matt brought this up, that I can think of is Lillian Voss, and she doesn't want that job. She's made that perfectly abundantly clear. She's She doesn't want to be a leader. She wants to be the power behind the throne. If anything, she wants to be able to do what she needs to do to make things go the way they need to go. She doesn't want to be up front and center. She's not a diplomat, right? So let us know what you think. Uh, our next question comes from Trogdur. Uh, for the podcast or lore watch. Well, I guess we're going to use it here. Haha, <laughs> I beat Matt to one. Is it me or do the Arbiter and the Jailer look pretty similar? Like they could be the same type of being. Okay, I know I don't have a lot to go on, but they're both lanky and pale and the Arbiter has some type of gem in her chest where the Jailer has a big hole. Maybe the Jailer is some kind of disgraced Arbiter and his soul hoarding is a way of getting even. What do you think? Well, I don't honestly... I mean, there is that the the hole in the chest. I've noticed the arbiter's head is completely. In, in, we can't see it. We have no idea what it looks like. It it might be that 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 thing on top of her head is in fact not. A, you know what I'm saying? We don't know if that's a mask or if that's actually her head or what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are certain the, this like you, the the big hole he mentioned absolutely does seem to have some potential here, and the, I have noticed the hole in the jailer's chest especially when i was doing the uh the maw intro stuff which i did this week for this for the site and i did notice that and i have been thinking about it i don't know if it's as simple as they're the same kind of thing or the jailer's an ex-arbiter there's a there's a point uh, can we do spoilers here 
You know what? I think this one is one that we can do a spoiler tag on. So you've been warned. Uh, give us a couple minutes if you want to come back to the, the rest of the episode. Uh, but there's going to be probably some potential spoilers for probably the next five, ten minutes. When you do the Maw intro quest, one of the things that happens is you eventually get to a point where you and the people you're you're with are in the Maw. You've been there for a little bit. Um, there's There's also some quest text. There's some text from the people you're with. I'll just say it. Jaina Proudmore says at one point that she's been there for weeks, but from your perspective, you just came in after her after finding out she was taken, and it definitely has not been weeks. Uh, so that's that's there. That's established. That several people: Jaina, Thrall, Bane Bloodhoof, Anduin Los, Anduin Rind. I say Anduin Los, Anduin Rind have been captured by Sylvanas and held in the Maw for, to them, weeks or months. And from your perspective barely any time at all like this is from your perspective she broke the helm of domination and ended up in the shadowlands and you just arrived after like you're just hot on her heels but from their perspective it's been months so you, after you 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 help them you break everybody out you get to a certain point you manage to get around the jailer's armies and you find a thing called a waystone and the waystone is also called a way gate I know Joe knows what waygates are in WoW. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very clear. Everyone's telling you that this thing is useless, that it does not work, and it has not worked in eons. There is no escape from the Maw. There's no way out. You get there, and Jaina can't activate it. But you can. And as it's activating for you, again, you, not Jaina, not Thrall, not Bane, not Anduin, you... The jailer comments on this. He's like, strange that a device of the first ones should activate for a mortal. Those are the exact words he uses. Who are the first ones? Why are they making way gates? Way gates in which we've seen them in mostly Titan areas and Titan facilities over the course of several years. Uh, now, this waygate does not look exactly like previous waygates we've seen. It is very different looking. But the fact that he calls them the first ones, and the fact that the device is clearly something he is familiar with, he knows what it is and what it does, and then he, the, the fact that he calls them the, the, the makers of it the first ones, and the waygate apparently... And here's the thing. We don't know for sure that this is the way the waygate goes. Okay. Uh, because the the intro just ends here, you go through the gateway gate, you end up in Oribos by yourself. I don't know if that's how it's going to go when the expansion goes live. I don't know if it's supposed to end there. But if the way gate does go to Oribos, that implies that the Oribos was made by the beings that made the way gate. And that the Shadowlands are all supposed to, supposed to be hooked up together. When was the last time we saw a place like that? The elemental planes were supposed to all be hooked up by waygates. We know because there's the, the the tower that's supposed to hold the plane of Earth together. There's supposed to be multiple elemental planes. They're all supposed to be linked together. Well, there's also the Master's Gate right inside of uh, that we These see. Were all, those were all created by Titans. Yep. Now, we know that the Titans exist because somebody somewhere hurls pure arcane energy into our world where planets form around it to protect it. Did they do the same to the Shadowlands? Or are they from the Shadowlands? Are they the first ones? Yeah, we don't know. I have no idea. But 
comparing that, the fact that, you know, you go to Ouroboros, atop Ouroboros is the Arbiter, who usually stays in the stream of souls and judges everyone as they pass through, but she's currently stunned and can't do her job, thus everybody's being streaming straight to the Maw. The fact that you mentioned that hole in the Arbiter's chest and that gem-like thing in the... Uh, no, the, the hole in the Arbiter's chest with that gem-like thing and the hole in the Jailer's chest that has nothing in it. I don't know what the connection is there, but I definitely have noticed it. Uh, especially when I was doing the whole bit with the Maw and you find out about the Jailer. The Jailer is said to be tormenting the people that he captures. And Drawl, who's one of the people who's been tormented by him, says it felt like a test, but I have no idea what he was trying to find out. The other thing that I've been wondering about that's in seeing the hole in the chest, because you're not the you, you're not definitely not the only one that's noticed that and noticed that the Arbiter that has the gem is Blizzard in general has a love of deities or supreme beings that split themselves. Uh, we saw this with Diablo. We've uh, seen this in other instances of of earlier Warcraft lore, like during the RTSs, we started talking about light and darkness originally when it moved away from Catholicism. Like this is a common theme that they tend to explore. One of the things I've always been that I've been wondering since seeing the Jailer and the Arbiter is if they are parts of the same being. If the reason that they're set as they are is if a being split itself in half, maybe not to purge itself, but to accomplish specific goals. Uh, the jailer seems to be almost pure malice, right? Like it seems to be this being that, that desires uh, torture and, and hatred and pain and, and sort of every negative thought and feeling that we could possibly think of. Uh, hence Torghast, hence the eternal torture, hence uh, all these things that, we've been told about it so far. And again, I'm speaking just from what I know. I'm not in the alpha or anything like that. So I, I haven't experienced any of it firsthand, but I could see a being who needs to do both the judging and parsing of souls and the punishment, maybe not wanting to carry that stain and splitting themselves to accomplish that goal. And then it becomes something bigger than itself. Uh, who knows? I mean, another possibility could be that the jailer was created by a, if there is a being that was like the Ur Arbiter that felt it had to be completely impartial, it might have taken its good and evil sides out of itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the entirety of the Maw could be the prison originally for the Jailer. Maybe the Jailer can't get out of the Maw. And that's why it's willing to make deals with people and do all this stuff, because it wants a way out of its prison that was made to be its prison first. And all this other stuff going into there is just going there because... Once the prison is created for the ultimate evil being, it starts catching all the other evil souls, and it's a good place to put them. Why not? I'm, and that's just purely off-my-head supposition. I have no evidence for that. There's no proof of that in-game. Um, and I, I, for, all, for all I know, that's, I absolutely don't even necessarily believe that that's the case, but it's something to think about. We really don't know the relationship of the Arbiter and the Jailer right now. We know that the Arbiter is currently somehow incapacitated, can't do, can't do its function. I want to say her function. I don't really know if they've established that yet. I don't think they but have. The, the Arbiter can't do its function. Their function, I should say. Uh, and the the Jailer is currently, you know, the Jailer basically had Anduin Rin in chains for an extended period of time and was torturing him, and we don't know why. Like, for something, but we don't know why. So it definitely seems like the Jailer's got its own... Agenda. ideas going on yeah and definitely not necessarily the stuff Sylvanas is doing either uh, he seems to be looking for something 
or someone from the living. Which I don't know what. Which, from what you described, might be us if it's looking for the first ones. Or maybe the first ones are what created the Arbiter and the Jailer. Maybe the first ones are what locked the Jailer away. Maybe that's the key necessary for the Jailer to escape, is somebody with the spark of one of the old ones. Uh, I mean, it seems very much she run the Princesses of Power, which I'm not exactly mad at. Uh, so I'm okay with it, but it's... it's we don't know enough about what that actually means yet. Yep, exactly. But we will find out, and I'm going to guess probably very early in the, the expansion, once that experience is shored up, uh, especially... I, I think we're going to spend a good chunk of time learning exactly what the Arbiter and what the Jailer actually are in-game, and... I think Rossi might be onto something, and again, this is again just off the top of his head, but it's something that I think would be interesting, is if instead of just having a being that split itself in half, if it's a being that split itself in thirds, taking its pure good, its pure evil uh, out of itself so that it could remain completely impartial, then maybe we discover there's a third part of it floating around. Maybe something happened to that part, and that's why the Arbiter is stunned, or that's why the Jailer is starting to do what it's doing. Who knows? But it's it's interesting because this is something new. It's something we haven't really seen before, hopefully. So, TLDR, no idea, but we'll find out at some point soon, probably. Uh, our next question comes from Vertigree. Uh, I just noticed something wild unlocking the first heart essence. In the quest, chasing down the Black Dragonflight's essence, Ebonhorn says, I have heard tales of ruptures like this on Kaltiris and Zandalar. It seems like the wounds Magni had us fixing all the time were actually only in the places we saw them, not an off-screen worldwide problem. Why? P.S. I'm convinced we will personally use the heart to re-empower the Dragonflights to protect Azeroth just before we leave for the Shadowlands. Uh, no, you see the ruptures in Notharian's lair. That's where that you are when you when he says that. So maybe they were mostly there, but they're definitely not all there because Notharian's lair is not in either of those places. It's in the Legion zones. So no, it's not just there. It could just be that it's happening more in the islands because the islands are close to the maelstrom, and the maelstrom is the remainder of the gigantic hole that got blasted into the world when when we stop Sargeras from coming through the first time. It could effectively be the equivalent of old scars breaking open. Because all the, you know, if you look at uh, all the, the Legion area, the, the Broken Isles, Zandalar and Kalteris, they're all floating in, in, the, uh, in the in the Great Sea, and they're all closer to each other than they are anything else. Um, so it's possible that those, those fractures are just in areas that were more vulnerable in the first place. But you can't take what he said to indicate that there's no ruptures happening even in other places entirely. Just because he's heard of them happening in a certain place does not mean they're not happening in other places. You, you can't extrapolate a negative from that statement. It'd be like if I said, wow, I've heard about this from back home. It doesn't imply that it's not, it's not happening anywhere except back home. It just means my information comes from this specific area. It's an awkward way to have put that, yeah. I don't know why he puts it that way. You could, you know, you could interpret that any way you want. You can interpret that to be that he's got spies watching those areas. 
you can interpret that as somebody just made him say it that way when they were writing it and didn't really think about what they were doing. I don't know. Uh, but it, it, it does not, you are, you're, you're going too far with your assumption. You're taking a true statement, which is that he says this exact thing and taking it to mean something it does not necessarily mean. Now, I will say that as a player, a question that I've had about this since we started Battle for Azeroth is I always expected more ruptures to appear throughout the rest of the world, like maybe in the Eastern Kingdoms, maybe throughout more of Kalimdor. We know they're in Kalimdor, though. We know they're in Kalimdor, but Eastern Kingdoms didn't seem to have any sort of anything with that. Yeah, but again, is that a case of they're not happening there yet? Or is it a case of they didn't bother to code them into areas that were barely right. ever going to be in? I mean, that's the problem with any of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, we know that they're in Kalimdor because they're happening right around the sword wound. Yes. And it's quite possible the reason they're not happening in other parts of the world is the fact that they have there's a giant hole in Kalimdor with a big sword sticking out of it. And that's the primary area that they're happening everywhere. And like we bring up the Maelstrom, the Maelstrom is the largest wound in Azeroth's surface currently that's been ripped open twice. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's it's a weird question because this is one of those things where the story and the game mechanics tend to be a little bit opposed because of, like Matt just said, do you as a game programmer, as a company, when you're producing this, do you spend the time coding this into all the places where players generally aren't going to go for the sake of story or do you just tell the story and have that sort of be the focus point and not worry about if the game world in like reflects it perfectly. It's a hard position to be in as far as that goes. But story wise, dealing with Magni, not Ebonhorn, but Magni, he specifically says they're happening all over the world. Whatever that means, it could we we haven't really gotten a whole lot in the way of like absolute specifics about it. But I would take that over the in-game uh, viewing of it because that, again, it's the story as presented versus the story as seen. So I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense. I hope it does. But, yeah. Basically, like you, you can't assume... You, first off, you can't assume a negative from a positive. You can't assume that because X is true that it's only true. I've, I've heard about these things happening in these places. Does not mean, therefore, they're not happening everywhere else. They're only happening in these places. Because A, it's just Ebonhorn saying that. And B, he's just saying he's heard about them in these areas. He's not saying that they're not anywhere else. Um, which, and even if he is saying that, as Joe just pointed out, Magni has said they're happening worldwide. Uh, but also, these not, they're not going to code in Azerite deposits everywhere in the world. That's a lot. You'd have to put them in every zone. And think about just what a ridiculous amount of time that would take. Unless there were world quests in every zone requiring us to go and deal with Azerite messes, which maybe there should be. I don't know. But I feel like they were going to limit that kind of thing to the new zones because that's where new players are going to, that's where players are going to spend most of their time at max level. Yeah, which makes, to me, it makes the most amount of sense. Right? Like, it you spend the time as a company choosing to make the places where the players are going to spend the most time, the most involved, and then just rely on what's told to us or relayed through story or whether it's, uh, you know, a short story released or even in a book or whatever the case is, 
to sort of fill in the gaps. And it's not the first time they've done that. Cataclysm, there was a lot of that. And yes, the whole world changed, but there was a lot of things that we got presented through like the shattering book that we didn't get to see in game particularly. So again, you got to take it with that grain of salt and you have to look at it at least from that angle. All right. Our next question, these are two of them and it comes from daddy, a U.S. Lightbringer torn warrior tank, specifically capital letters tank. I'm not yelling that though. Uh, hello, great watchers and discussers of lore. I appreciate so much what you guys bring and do. Two questions. Feel free to trim the fat of the questions as you desire. Well, let's see. Uh, question number one. Uh, Gen wants Anduin to get wife and make babies. How do you see or who do you see as a viable option for romantic or story reasons? My lists and quick reasons are as follows. Tess Greymane, about the same age, both royalty of human kingdoms. Gen is already a father figure. Talia Fordring, about the same age, lots of involvement in BFA, getting four to dragon. Four four, dragon, sorry. Not four dragon. Yep, sorry, four dragon. Thank you. Uh, about the same age, lots of involvement in BFA, getting to know her, getting to know her daughter, a famous storm and nobility hero, and another surrogate father figure to Anduin. Vanessa Van Cleef, about the same age, marriage due to politics, very Games of Thronesy, creates interesting possible storylines to follow. Yorel from Warlords of Draenor. This is my far-fetched option. Uh, young for a Draenei, obsessed with Paladin Light, pen, uh, pending wh who you believe, and could push Anduin to extremism and interesting story beats in game. Interspecies marriages, Dra uh, Draenei, Orc, Human High Elf, Goblin Gnome, have been happening before, so why not this? Anduin would have to get used to being shorter, though. Others, please discuss. I think we'll start with that one, then we'll move on to the second one. So, um, well, I mean, Yorel, I don't even know if she's going to ever show up in the main story timeline. Mm -hmm. Last we saw Yorel, technically, the entirety of Warlords of Draenor happened about 30 years ago. The, the timeline on that world moved forward while we were not there anymore. And the Maghar story indicates that the world is gone. I mean, it doesn't, I'm not entirely sure that the entire planet is gone or not, but that seemed to be what the, the, the gist of the Maghar quest line was indicating. And Yorel, in that in that version of that world, had apparently gone on to become somewhat fanatical in the service of the of the of the Naru, and we don't know what happened to her. I don't know if she's alive or dead. We don't nothing. I'd love to see more Yorel. I'd love to know what's going on there, but I feel like it's not just far fetched for the reasons you might have listed, but also because we don't even know if she's alive. So until such time as, as Blizzard wants to bring Yorel back, I, I feel like Yorel is an extremely remote possibility. I feel like I would be doing a disservice to everybody if I didn't point out that a whole lot of people want Anduin to, to hook up with Rathion. Yeah. So I'm just throwing that out there that people want that. I, I quite frankly don't care who Anduin dates or marries or has kids with or doesn't have kids with. None of that matters to me in the slightest. Uh, but of the people you've listed, Vanessa Van Cleef is... I, if that ended up happening, it would be because Vanessa Van Cleef came up with a fake ID, inserted herself into Stormwind as a noble, got him to fall in love with her, and married him as part of a plot to kill him and take over. Like, I could see that happening. I don't see the two of them actually hitting it off. She's real mad about that time Stormwind had her dad killed. Yep. Like, really mad about it. I don't see her... Like forming an actual, although, I mean, you could do an interesting story about her starting all that stuff I just said, and then halfway through being like, but he's really nice. No, he's got, I've just got to kill him. I've got to kill him and take over. But he did that nice thing. Nah, you know, you could do something with that. I don't know. 
but I I feel like Vanessa Van Cleve's exceptionally. I don't know, man. Maybe who knows? Uh, do you want to go? I mean, I have more to say with the other two, but I can shut up so you can talk for a bit. Well, I was gonna say the Vanessa Van Cleef is probably the one that I would be most interested in, just because, like you said, they could just do that thing where she's doing it purely to kill him. Uh, but it also could be one of those things with, who knows? Maybe it starts as a her getting leverage or threatening to dismantle whatever power base he has. Because right now, we've talked about this a bunch, the Alliance is at its weakest point. They've just waged a huge war. A bunch of the uh, factions that, that comprise some of the stronger elements are, are being decimated or have been decimated and are starting to pull their support. Like the Night Elves, you cannot say that the Night Elves were not an incredibly important factor in the Alliance's success over all of these years since Warcraft 3. Because they have been. Priests, druids, all this magic and support, all the scouting, their military is incredibly strong. They had probably the greatest fleet after the the Warcraft 3 games. Uh, They were the only ones that had a fleet for so long. Like, Stormwind has a shipyard, but they're still producing boats at an alarmingly slow rate. Uh, And now they got their own stuff to worry about. Their home burned down. Tyrande is out for revenge, rightfully so. Like... That's a whole destabilizing situation that they could that could be exploited. And I could see Vanessa Van Cleef going, listen, I can make all of this go away or I can make it 10 times worse. You can pick like that would be interesting to me. I don't see her. I straight up. I disagree with you that she would ever approach anyone as herself. I do not. And, for and a billionth of you, a second because that's not her. That's not and that's fair. And that's absolutely all. fair. That's absolutely fair. But you I mean, she could also appear as somebody else and have the same ultimatum. Yeah, I don't. But the ultimatums aren't her style. That's not how she. You you look at how she works. Every time she's appeared in the game, she makes it look like she's doing the right thing. She wouldn't go up to him and say, "I'll make this worse if you don't do what I want." I could see her going in and saying, "You know, hey, I'd like to help. How can I help you? How can I make the situation better? I want to. You know, I've been sheltered for so long, but now I want to take part of the alliance and help it, and then slowly move him in directions she wants, all while preparing to kill him and take over." Mm-hmm. That I can mm-hmm. see. That's that's her kind of thing. But the thing you just described is much more of a Lillian Voss move. Fair. Lillian Voss is the kind of person who would totally give you that kind of ultimatum. Although she'd also possibly couch it better. Like she she's she's learned and grown too. Like the person she was back when she first appeared is not the person she's been recently. Like she's learned subtlety. Lillian Voss has gotten way more subtle than she used to be. Um, by the way, Lillian Voss is... I'm throwing her in there as a dark horse. Um, <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> Some people, apparently, the, the Scarlet Crusade thinks that the anyone's going to marry Sylvanas. So, that would be, no, hey. that, that would be the greatest uh, the greatest movie of the summer, honey. So I married a corpse murderer. In, in both ways, because she's both a corpse who murders and she it's, murders corpses. So, yeah, exactly. totally. Um, but, yeah, I... I, I know I jumped in on you there, but I, I, I don't no, disagree. No, it's, it's... I, I don't disagree that 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 Vanessa could do all sorts of malevolent behind the scenes stuff, and it could be interesting. But, but I don't think the way that you're saying she would do it. I don't. That does not feel. And, like and that's and that's fair. But I'm just saying, like, there's she of all the choices, she seems the most interesting and has the most opportunity to me to have a ton of different ways that the story could go. So like I I'll just straight like up tell one. you right now. I think the Tess Greymane only has one way it could go, in that she does not seem in the slightest bit interested in marrying anybody. Yep. Oh yeah, she Tess- she's not on that she's not on that boat. 
Screaming is on the I go out and stab people because I'm I am a stabbing person person, and I'm not interested in politics. That's my father has been trying to get me interested, and it's like nope. My brother was supposed to take care of that. He died. Oh well. You know, Tess Greenmane seems very like her and uh, if her and, and 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 Crowley, Leela Crowley, if the two of them aren't like straight up in a relationship, it's heavily it's, implied. It, yeah, and it's it's a misstep on your part, there, Blizzard. If you don't take if you don't take that example and run with it. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't think Tess. I like Tess. I think she's a cool character. I'd love to see more of Tess Greenmane. I would love to see more of Tess Greenmane as an advisor to yeah. Anduin possibly even a friend who can understand what he's going through like oh yeah the pressure is awful i know how that is but i definitely don't think she would she should be or would be a good match for him um she would serve really well as the one who basically for every time anduin has a plan and be like you know we'll do this and she'd be the one going anduin did you grow up in a cloister do you actually, you know, you lived here in this palace, you watched people, yes, you know how people are. This is not going to work. And because they got rid of the person that was doing that for him. Mm-hmm. You know, he needs a person to do that for him. So I, I totally don't buy Tess Greymane as, as Anduin's wife or, or, you know, future queen of Stormwind. No. I, and I would Tess argue Talia? Mm-hmm. Talia's the safest. Like, it, she's the one that, like, and, and when I mean safest, I mean it's the one that has a, has the least interesting connotations if that makes sense to, to, to and I'm not saying that it's a bad idea or that they'll never do it but it's it's just that's the safe choice it's the obvious choice and people have been calling I, for that since she she first was shown I don't disagree with anything you're saying except that again because of Shadowlands the choice is no longer so safe because in the again some spoilers here I feel like this episode is just going to have to have a spoiler warning at this point but this is you. Everyone knows that this happens in Shadowlands. When Bolvar gets his helmet broken, he goes back to being Bolvar, just Bolvar. They're calling him High Lord Four Dragon again. He himself, when when you go in, the, the Ice and Ebon Blade say, "Yeah, it's not all bad," because now he doesn't have to be the Lich King anymore. He's free. So, Anduin marrying her is marrying the daughter of Bolvar Fordragon. Now you're thinking, but Bolvar's like a family friend. Bolvar like, was practically a, se- a second father to Anduin. Bolvar has just spent the last however many years as the Lich King. Also, Bolvar is quote-unquote dead to everybody yeah. in the real world, right? But it's starting to come out, apparently. Like At least all the Horde and Alliance leaders know it now. They do, which is why they had that and, conversation with Talia at the end of, uh, end of the expansion. But, but... I just I I don't think at the end of Shadowlands and I don't think Bolvar's situation is going to be as easy as people think it might be. And I don't think it's a good the idea that, that there's no drama involved in Talia Fordragon, that I don't agree with because I think there's a ton of drama. It all involves like she has no idea her father is currently alive. And she may not in any way, shape or form want to get bundled off into a marriage just after finding out her dead father is in fact, you know, not so quite dead the way he's supposed to be. There's, there's, I think Talia has too much in her life to be slotted into this role. I don't think it's, it would be good character development. I don't think Anduin Rin is, Anduin Rin is going to have kids anytime soon. I I tend to agree. Gen can push for it all he wants. The combination of the fact that most of the candidates are not suitable, and keep in mind, of course, that that Anduin's mother Tiffin was just a Stormwind noble. 
it's quite possible they could just bring some other Stormwind Noble up. It doesn't have to be any of these characters. Um, but I really don't think Anduin's life, like, again, in Shadowlands, Anduin gets kidnapped and taken to the land of the dead. And I have no idea if he gets out by the end of the opening experience. And we have no idea what that does to him. Yeah. We have, and, we... and it's just, there's a lot going on here, guys. I think you're going to have to wait on the babies. Although <laughs> I, I am, really do. I am kind of curious when we're going to get that older vision of Anduin at some point where he's got that sick beard and everything from the the, the comic because we never Is that got coming that. up? Like that's the next part of the story here? I hope so. Uh, no, I mean the question we're getting asked after this Possibly. question. Possibly. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, so, I mean, just finishing off that, I mean, I will say when I say that Talia is the safe choice, I mean the obvious one out of all the, the, the people like... Again, not not that it's not going to have its own drama. I agree with you on that front. So, but yeah, who knows? But I don't think it's going to be for a while. Maybe maybe end of Shadowlands as Anduin sits down and goes, what have I done with my life? Man, that, that was horrible. Maybe I should back off for a and little Ra- bit. Rathian comes out of the shower and is like, it's all right. Rathian, I'm not letting it go. Yeah. I'm not letting go. Ra- Rathian. I, don't even, I don't even ship the two of them, but I'm not letting go. Honey, we have eggs to lay. It's fine. Uh the second question from our, our friend Daddy here, uh, concerning the possible time jump after Shadowlands, why isn't anyone connecting the dots about the comic that at the end shows Anduin and Velen together on the Draenei ship, leaving to go kick butt? Whose butt are they kicking? I assumed demons, but now I'm not sure. Would we come in at the same time they are leaving and join them, or after they fu- or after they fight and maybe lose, or in a distant future where we deal with the fallout of whatever the results? So yeah, that's. Uh, this is a question. Not a, I'm asking. straight up. I'm going to straight up say this right now. It is not a possibility, and it's okay. not a possibility because Anduin is in the Shadowlands with us, and for all we know, he doesn't escape when we do from the Maw. So if we get that at the end of this expansion, it's because Anduin ages into a much older person while he's being held in the Maw, and that's what I was. Where time get seems at. to go faster. And- that's that's exactly where I was going to go with this. Like, you were talking, like, the thing you brought up earlier, again, and there, there's some spoilers here. If you, uh, Sorry about that, folks. Uh, it's this, expi- this episode at this point, guys, this episode is going to have spoilers in it. There's no way around it at this point. Yeah, and I, I, I'm probably going to record a little quasi-spoiler thing before the introduction for the actual recording to warn people. But i've been wondering about that a lot because that comic was very clear we don't know where they were they like if they were going to argus they i don't think they explicitly said in the comic it's been a while since i've looked at it um but that older version of anduin like i've been thinking about that particularly since you this episode said that for them being captured and tortured in the maw was weeks for them possibly longer so with the time jumping going around if at the end we clean everything up and Anduin gets saved, even if it's not after the introduction, but we pull him out at the end of it or whatever, how old is he going to be? How is that going to change things? Is that going to be the catalyst that brings us to that point? Like, I'm very curious about that now, and I blame Rossi 100% for it. Yeah, I don't think, and I think the only way that that could work is literally what I think is going to happen in terms of a time jump is, in fact, we're going to come out of we're going to come out of this place, the Shadowlands, and it's going to literally be that we just got sent in. Yeah, because time seems to go longer there. Like you know, a second outside is yeah. It's so you come out of there like we've we've done the whole expansion. You know, months or perhaps even years have passed. 
You know, we're all finally out. Here's like much older Jaina, much older Thrall, much older Bane, much older Anduin, and ourselves. We were, you know, I'm a night elf, so you would barely even notice. But and but that here's the other problem: we don't know if that's the case for every Shadowland. Like we don't know if that's the case for Ardenweald. We don't know if that's the case for Bastion. We don't know how it works. We're entering into a place where we have no concept of how much time is going to pass between the worlds of the Shadowlands. Like, when you go to, to Revendreth, is time moving faster or slower there? I don't know. I have no idea how it works. So it's very hard to, to speculate meaningfully on, is that one comic from Legion going to end up coming true, that end bit, where a much older Anduin and Velen get on a ship and go do something? Could it happen? Sure. It, you, we could come out and maybe it's 20 years later and, you know, but the thing is, is like, unless we rescue Anduin at the end of the Maw, which at this moment, I don't know if we do or not. Guys, straight up, I know that at the end of the Maw, you open the portal while you're under attack by the Jailer's minions. Do they come through with you? They didn't, they didn't come out of the portal when I came out of it on the Alpha, but it's an Alpha. There's also several cinematics that aren't there. Like, you know, I, I know Sylvanas shows up at one point because I see her, but I didn't get to see the cinematic, so I don't know what happens when you're there with her confronting her. I don't know what she says or does. And that's the case for a lot of this stuff. We, we know pieces. We've got a framework. But we don't know everything. And the only way we're going to find out everything is to actually play it. Yep. Uh, when, it when it comes out. I, I am always really reluctant and hesitant when people start doing this thing where they find something from a couple of years ago and they're like, oh my god, this is totally going to be what happens. Sometimes that does happen, and sometimes it really doesn't. Um, and so I'm going to say this much. Don't, don't pin too many of your hopes on that happening. Don't, don't pin a ton of hopes on this this being what happens at the end of this expansion, that we jump we jump into a time ship or whatever with, with Varian. Not Varian. Yeah, Varian shows up too. Don't worry about that. Uh, Anduin and, and Velen and head off somewhere. And I know some of the some of the speculation about this has come from the fact that there's two versions of the of that comic online right now. There's one version where the very end of it has a slightly different last panel. That, that omits the text from Velen from the other version. And we don't know like, why there are two versions of it out there, why one of them omits Velen's text and the other doesn't. You know, that's no idea. It could just be a simple typo. It could be a lot of things. It could be a hint, I guess. If Blizzard is out there sending some extremely oblique hints, then it could be a hint. It's quite possible these things are related, and I don't want to dismiss it. I just don't really have an answer for you. There are a lot of people who are speculating on it, though. Don't oh, yeah. think you are the only person to be speculating on that oh, one, no. on that comic. Tons of people are speculating about it. All right, I think we have time for one more question for today. Uh, we think we're going to go to Spry Sprocket on this one. Greetings, Waters. Kind of a broad question, but what's the story with Dire Maul? I've been taking advantage of the XP buff and leveling so many alts, mostly through Dungeon Finder. So Dire Maul is mostly just a couple of dungeons I pass through in early levels and never see again. There are ogres, demons, ghost elves, and angry trees, but I don't really get how it's all tied together. What is Dire Maul and how does it fit into the wider story of Warcraft? Okay, huge spoilers for Shadowlands coming up. No, that's a lie. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I love it. Um, Dire Maul is Eldrathalus. It is one of the night elf cities from before the, the, the shattering when, when the, the sundering, sorry, <laughs> I always forget sundering or shattering. Shattering is the newer one that happened in cataclysm. Sundering is the um, older one. Yep. Yeah. Basically what happened was the highborn had, you know, cities, you know, founded cities all over the place. Uh, every place they took land from the trolls because any place the trolls had that the night elves wanted, they took, they just beat them up and took it. They, there was nothing that the, uh, the trolls could do to stop them. Like only a few places they were in the very North or the very South or uh, the area around um, the, the sacred Island, the, the sacred mountain of Zandalar. Those are the only places they didn't bother with either because it would have been just, it would have been hell on earth to take Zandalar mountain. Cause that was like the holiest spot to the trolls. All their Loa were there. That it was going to be a heck of a fight. And the rest of it, it was just like, yeah, do we really care what the Frost Trolls are doing? It's really cold up there, and it's not really important. Stuff like that. So for most most of the world was under Night Elf domination. The places they didn't have were either too hard, too, too tough a nut to crack, or just not worth the effort. Eldrathalus is one of those colonies. It was a city built by the Highborn. The Highborn being the Highborn, you know, the, 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 the Night Elves that were practicing sorcery and were considered essentially nobility. Uh, second only to Eshar. When Eshar decided to, you know, that she wanted to marry Sargeras and remake the world in her image, the the various Highborn had to decide, you know, or how loyal are we going to be? Like, for instance, the Highborn who who lived in what is now Suramar, and which was Suramar at the time, kind of betrayed her because they had access to these demonic artifacts. And the area around Suramar was already like, no, this is nuts. These demons are not good. And so Melisande basically betrayed Ashara and kept her city safe. The ones in Eldrathalus were far enough away that they were like isolated from what was going on. They were far to the south. And they were like, I'm not really sure what's happening, but we don't like it. So they decided to protect Eldrathalus, and they did successfully manage to keep Eldrathalus intact. Problem is, is with the Well of Eternity gone, they didn't have access to the you know ma the magical energy of the Well anymore. There was a Well up north, they didn't know about it. They were completely cut off. They were down in the south of Kalimdor, very far away from everything that was going on in Hyjal. They didn't join the rebellion, so they weren't part of that group. They didn't know about, uh, you know, the, the Sunstriders like Dathramar. They, they weren't part of his group. When he got himself exiled from Kalimdor, he went across the water. He didn't go south. He didn't hook up with them. They still had no idea what was going on. And so they didn't have access to the well anymore. So they started going through the same problem that, that elves always have when they don't have a font of arcane power. They started going through withdrawal. Now, the Night Elves didn't have that problem because the Night Elves gave up magic. They became, you know, attuned to nature. They became feral and wild. The highborn of, you know, the north, the ones that left with Dathramar, solved the problem by creating the sun well. Using one of the wells of water that Illidan Stormrage had, you know, used to create his well of eternity. They, they made the sun well. And that was their new, their new font of arcane power. And over eons, they changed and became the, the, the high elves. The nightborn, or Shaldorai, basically did the same kind of thing except using those artifacts I mentioned they had a titan artifact that they used to create the night well 
is essentially very similar to to the Sunwell, except it was you know a different kind of magic, and they stayed isolated for literally ten thousand years and changed into the night. You know they became the Shalderai. The ones down in Eldrathalis didn't have any Titan artifacts or vials of water from the Well of Eternity. They did not have a way to stop this from happening to them. And they didn't want it to happen to them. They didn't want to go through arcane withdrawal. And they didn't, you know, they, their only option, according to their leader, Prince Torthaldrin, was to use demonic magic. Very similar to what the Blood Elves did after the, the Sunwell was defouled. They captured a demon and shackled him into the center of Eldrathalus. And they used that demon, and I'm forgetting his name, I want to say Oculon, but I don't think that's his name. He's the big eyeball hound monster that's in the middle of the of that particular dungeon in Dire Maul. They locked him up and they used him as, a, as basically a mana battery for countless thousands of years. And anybody who protested that this was wrong, that this is what happened to the world in the first place, that they were going to make things worse, got themselves executed by Prince Tortheldrin and his, his allies. So Tortheldrin, as a prince, if you, if you, did, um, you did any of the... Uh, I want to say Azuna. Yeah, if you did Azuna, you, you saw another prince. Princes were like the sub-leaders, the ones who reported to Queen Ashara. Mm-hmm. Prince Torfeldrin was essentially one of Ashara's supporters who just got cut off from her when the war happened. And so he ruled uh, the area as its prince for uncounted thousands of years, sustaining his life not with the, the pact that the Night Elves made with the, the, the you know, Nordrazil. He didn't have that immortality. He was just stealing magic from the demon to keep himself alive. Yeah, Imulthar. Yeah, Imulthar. And as a result of that, he went pretty insane and began ruling in an extremely draconian fashion. That's why there are so many night elf ghosts in that place, because if they angered him enough, he'd kill them. And then that's also why there's so many demons in there, too, because it wasn't just one demon that got summoned in. There was there were many of them, many of them, because they had increasing power, right? Well, plus they were doing that beforehand anyway. That's something that the the, the, the highborn did. They summoned mm-hmm. demons and used them. Uh, if you go to the if you go through um, Dire Mall now, there are effectively three dungeons in there. Uh, there's the ruins of Eldrathalas, which is the part that goes all the way down to the giant tree monster at the end. That one's completely full of demons and tree monsters and more demons and more tree monsters and satyrs and all that stuff. That part is is the part that was just abandoned because it was just crawling with monsters and demons and they couldn't control it anymore. Then you've got the part, uh, the, the part where you have the tribute run that's that's ruled by the ogres. That's the, the ogres north, Darmal North. Yeah, Darmal North. That part is essentially ruled by ogres just because the the night elves abandoned it and the ogres just moved in. Plus, it had and the arena, like, and the and the the ogres were like, "Yeah, I like arenas. Arenas are great. I can make yeah, I can make my slaves fight each other." If you look at the actual the way that the ogres are in that area, it's very much a case where they just hold on by brute force. Mm-hmm. They've even enslaved some of like demon creatures as how the de- the demon hounds to serve them. Again, through brute force. There, there's no subtlety here. There's a couple of demon summoners. There's like a couple of warlock types within there. A couple of two-headed ogres that can call demons. It's very clear that they're picking it up, but. This is definitely a case of just raw. Most of it is just raw brute ogre strength. Uh, they've taken this part for their own, and nobody can really stop them or has any interest in stopping them. The night elves, the highborn that live in Eldrathalis, up until recently were just hanging around and getting high off their mana battery and trying not to make their crazy leader upset 
so he wouldn't make life worse for them while those magic pylons that they built eons ago to keep everyone else out are slowly breaking down because they're completely surrounded by angry mana elementals. You go through this place, you you shut the pylons down, you kill like the, the undead that are serving Prince Tortheldrin and the demons that are serving Tortheldrin. You free the spirits of those that were bound there and you kill Tortheldrin. When you kill Tortheldrin, the, the highborn that have been basically trapped in that place with him for thousands of years are like, okay, we can get out now? We're yeah, free now. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and they jo- they basically join the alliance. If you're a night elf mage, you either are one of them, or you were trained by one of them. They came out, they went up to uh, Teldrassil while it was still here, and they spoke to Taronda and to Malfurion, and were like, "We exist. We've been we've been trapped in that place for this whole time, but we're free now, and we want to defend our people because the world is even crazier than it was then." And after a debate, and after the the events of the book Wolfheart, which you should read, um. They're accepted, not by everybody. Maya of Shadow Song definitely doesn't accept them, but other people do, and they're now considered part of the Night Elves. So the Night Elves, if you actually want to play a real night, a real original Highborn, you can play a Night Elf, and that's that's what you are. If you're a Night Elf Mage, you're a Highborn, um, or you're trained by them. You can just be one that's trained by them too. But that's the story of Dire Maul. It's essentially an ancient Night Elf city that is complete. Like it fell into ruins. Parts of it were colonized. Parts of it were just taken over by the by the demons and creatures that already lived there, and parts of it are still held by by a, the descendants of the the night elves from ten thousand years ago. Who now that Tortheldrin is dead, they're kind of the, the ones that are sane got out and are now living with night elves with the, just the night elves. The ones that are still in there are not doing too well. It's not a great place to live. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else I can add. I think Matt has done a fantastic job of summoning up Dire Maul. Uh, it is a interesting place when you actually start breaking down the story of it. Uh, and honestly, I like Matt said, uh, read Wolfheart. You get a little bit of it as far as like where the High Elves come from from there. But that's sort of the, the short version of everything that happens there and why things are happening there. And even those undead that serve... Uh, the prince, they're tortured spirits. Like, there's voice lines. Like, if you actually start breaking down the voice lines of uh, the Magister and uh, I think Ravencloak was her name, like, they have things that indicate that even in death, they're being twisted and forced to serve and and all this other other stuff. And, and you get to see how dark and how twisted that place actually has become. But well worth your time to uh, spend some time learning about Dire Maul and uh, maybe doing some reading. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your questions answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. And for you, the listeners of Blizzard Watch, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You, uh, This is a great opportunity for you to check out Wolfhard, uh, the Shattering, and Before the Storm. Great books for you to pick up and listen to, and a great time uh, to, to sort of like catch up before we start moving into Shadowlands. Uh, you can download many of Blizzard's titles, as well as thousands of others, at blizzardwatch.com audible. Uh, so thank you guys. I will see you next week, and in the meantime, make sure that you send your questions in. Again, you can send them to us on Discord. You can send them in to us at the podcast email at podcast at blizzardwatch.com. And next week, we are very happy that Mel and Roe will be joining us to discuss her new book. So thank you very much. 
We'll see you then.